welcome to our church. My name is Chris, I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming today. If you're brand new, especially like Jess said before, glad you guys are joining today. We are, uh, I think Peter said, we're in the Gospel of John and have been for a little while. So if you have a Bible or a phone up and want to turn to chapter 8, that's where we'll be today. Uh, actually, the very end of chapter 7, I'll get to that here in a second. But we just got done preaching uh, chapter 7, which uh, is uh, also known as the Feast of Booths discourse when Jesus talks at the feast in Jerusalem about himself and how he relates to God the Father, uh, kind of orienting all things in a lot of ways back to himself thematically. We've talked about a lot of things like how he was the new temple, how he's the new source of life, how he's the new river of God, and the ultimate point really to the Feast of Booths itself, how he fulfilled different thematic points to the feast, kind of being that ultimate point of uh, remembrance when we think about God being a God who saves and so forth. Jesus is the ultimate kind of yes behind that. This is how God ultimately reveals and saves and says, this is who I am, and this is what it means to be made whole and to live forever. And so he's already been speaking in these terms. Uh, chapter 7 was kind of another iteration of it. It's going to continue today all the way really through uh, throughout the book. Um, but today the setting changes. And so we, we are now at the Mount of Olives outside the city, and uh, the Pharisees and scribes, these religious rulers, are seeking to trap Jesus uh, by bringing a woman to him who is caught in the act of adultery and kind of thrusting her in the middle of this circle and saying, Jesus, uh, deal with this. Um, And we'll talk about what the trap was here in in a second, but they're essentially trying to to kind of present this impossible uh, situation for him. So they had further cause to kill him uh, or at least to kind of more publicly reject him uh, and and things like that. So um, one of the things Jesus says in, in this passage that uh, it's kind of semi-famous, I would say, as well. So you might be familiar with this story, but uh, he speaks to the woman at the end and, and just says, neither do I condemn you, which is, uh, honestly, it is the best news we, we could ever hear. Whether we feel it or not is another question, maybe, uh, but objectively, uh, to, to see that statement and to say that's what God says to us um, and, and how he kind of positions himself through his son, the posture he has towards us is one of not condemnation, uh, but one of grace is uh, the best news. And so this story is, uh, uh, it sounds weird to say this maybe, but I think one of the best in the book. It's, it's uh, one of the more memorable. You've, you may have heard it before. If not, uh, I'm excited for you. that You get to read this for the first time today. So let's read it at the end of, we're at the very end of chapter 7 uh, through 8, 11 today. First of all, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down and, with, and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, so before we get into the passage, uh, some of you guys might be aware that there is a question as to whether or not this story was originally in John's gospel. Uh, In fact, all your Bible translations 
should include a footnote or a parenthetical of some kind like this that says the oldest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. Um, and so this is a small window into what New Testament scholars and Bible translators uh, do when comparing ancient Greek manuscripts of, or copies of the original New Testament that might differ in certain areas in order to determine uh, which copy was a reflection of the original and which wasn't. And age is one of the criteria used. Usually older copies are truer. Not all the time, but most of the time. Uh, the idea being it's much more likely that someone would add this story to John than take it away. And so all that to say, uh, John 8, uh, because of how it uh, fits so well with the Gospel of John and other things that Jesus does in, in the four Gospel accounts, and you could even say other theology that we have from the rest of the New Testament, this is very likely that, that this is something Jesus did do and say, but wasn't a part of John's original Gospel. Uh, some manuscripts have it at the end of John. Some manuscripts of Luke actually have it in them, which is interesting. Uh, so it was likely, again, an actual event that actually occurred that was passed down via oral tradition that copyists or scribes inserted in different places at a later date, not you know, sure exactly where to place it. And this is the most common place that we do see it, which is why it's in your English Bibles. All right, so the best way to read that and preach John 8 is to do so in context with the rest of the book and to show how it highlights already occurring John-related themes. And I kind of think I've already said it, but it really, really does do that. The only danger to something like this would be if uh, someone were to read this and say, um, wow, this actually gives us brand new Christian theology that the Bible doesn't say anywhere else. Uh, you should never do that with this passage. But no one ever does that anyway. Like, I don't think anyone's ever done that. And, and you, you can't really uh, with the way the story kind of uh, goes. And so, uh, but if that were to be the case, that would be the danger. Um, but, but that aside, it is a rich passage. It uh, corroborates with and underscores and underlines so much of what John has already been saying, uh, not to mention the apostles later when they write their letters and, and things uh, like that, okay? I may have just like opened a can of worms for some of you, and that's great. Um, if I did, I'd love to talk more, but I'm gonna take all of that and just bracket it to the side, all right? For this morning, it's gonna be over here. And I was gonna preach this passage because it is God's word. It's here for a reason, uh, even though with all these qualifiers by it, it really is because of how much it corroborates with the gospel elsewhere, it's, it gives us an angle on it that is um, well worth our time reading, well worth our time preaching as a church, well worth our time thinking about and seeing ourselves in. All right, so five themes today. If you uh, like to kind of look ahead uh, in the sermon insert, there's five big things I wanna spend time on. Uh, even with this said, it's just scratching the surface. There's so much richness uh, to this passage, it's, it's hard to summarize, but we'll, we'll look at five big things today, starting um, kind of at the end, but it actually goes to the beginning too, because it pertains to the woman. Uh, and that is uh, Jesus's compassion toward women, uh, but also men, uh, from verses 10, especially verses uh, 10 and 11, where Jesus advocates for this woman and, and kind of uh, backs her up. And we don't know a lot about the context here, but we do know that this woman did actually commit adultery because of how Jesus encourages her here at the end to sin no more, right? Which um, implies she sinned some before that. Uh, this actually happened. She really did commit adultery. She slept with a man who was not her husband and, and is caught, all right? So um, 
We'll talk more about the sin no more thing a little bit later, but, it, uh, but this whole thing does have the markings of a setup of some kind as well. Both on the side of adultery being a very private sin, so how is she caught? Kind of raises questions, right? Like, well, who was there outside the house or outside the window or something like that with their, with their iPhones um, going or something like that. But, but also on the side of where's the guy, right? Like, where's the dude? Here, it takes two to tango, something like this. So where is he? Um, plus, we also know they intended to trap Jesus with all of this from verse 6. So that kind of conveys the idea that they wanted this to happen so they could catch her so they could try to trap Jesus, right? It's kind of this, this uh, that's the flow of logic here. Um, so that Jesus would maybe, uh, and it, again, it's, it's even kind of unclear here as to how they want to trap him, but it's likely they want him to either continue to break with the law of Moses, as he's already done earlier in the Gospel of John, or maybe he would just seem very heartless in his treatment of her, so they have something, again, to kind of, more stuff to grab onto to accuse him of and, and you know, uh, take him to court with and ultimately kill him for. All right, so with all that background in place, uh, Jesus' actions here are, are all the more striking. Uh, this woman has sinned, but she's also been gravely and unfairly mistreated. So it's very nuanced and complicated. But in all of that, in and through the muck and the mess of all of that, Jesus is very compassionate towards her, right? She, he's extremely patient. He's definitely not quick to speak. He's drawing more in the dirt uh, than speaking, at least initially. We'll talk more about that later. Um, but he's definitely uh, coming across as a, a guy who has her back. Uh, this is basically cancel culture happening 2,000 years ago. All right, she's committing adultery. Somehow it's recorded and posted online. And yet Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't pile it on. And this is huge because this is indicative of how his gospel would later come to be. It's indicative of the gospel he's, he's slowly inaugurating in real time in history. Even though he hasn't died on the cross for our sins yet, that's the essence of the gospel. He's talking about it. He's embodying it. He's kind of putting it on physical display like it's a play on stage. We can kind of see it rather than just even hear it, though, though both are happening here as well. And again, this is really good news that, God, that Christ brings grace, not condemnation. To go again back to the last verse, but he brings uh, kindness, he brings forgiveness, he brings patience, and not uh, quick condemnation like uh, the, the men outside the circle are seeking to bring uh, the woman. And I was talking to some staff about this this week. This is really good news for everybody, men and women, but uh, we were talking a little bit this week about how Maybe in a physical sense, especially for women who have been mistreated by men, uh, or even in the church. And, and if that's you, I, I don't know if you know, stories like this are a solace to you or a comfort to you. Uh, I, hope, I hope it is, or they are. But the fact that Jesus mistreats, or sorry, interacts with women uh, like this who have been mistreated, um, offering grace, gentleness, and even advocacy uh, are just as true today as they were then and they will last forever. And he is the head of the church, um, not a person, not a group of people. Uh, and, and so I, I hope that's a solace. But, you know, at, at the same time, uh, on a spiritual level, there's a deeper thing going on here. And it, it, I think it's also important to see that he doesn't, like, when Jesus interacts with, like, two sides, he doesn't really take sides. He doesn't bring the men into the middle either, right? Like, he doesn't give the rocks 
to the woman and says, well, now you get to stone the guys, you know, like or the, they're the Pharisees, that, that she might judge them and harm them. Jesus makes it clear that he's not here to do that. He's not here to take sides because to take a side is to say that there's something that a person has done to deserve it. Uh, I think in the grand scheme, at least, as you look at like the, the flow of salvation history and how there is no partiality, God is always on the side of his people. You, obviously, broadly, that's, that's an important thing to grab onto. But in another sense, there's no partiality with the gospel. There's no gender or ethnicity or, or work or good work that we've done that turns the face of God towards us to say, you are on the good side of history. Like you are the preferred uh, side of thing, uh, things right here. Even if there's a more morally right way, uh, Jesus still says to the more moral people, you still need me just like the less moral. Like he doesn't say, congratulations for being on the right side of this issue morally. Um, well done. Let, now just bear with me while I go and fix these people that they might think like you. Like that's, that's not the voice of our shepherd, right? He doesn't, he doesn't act that way in, in the Bible. He walks right down the middle of the picketing lines yelling at each other and he says, you both need me. Even if one side has more of a, like a, we would say as a more uh, moral, they have the more moral high ground or whatever. All, because all people need Jesus. And our true problem is inside of us, not outside. That's been a big theme of John as well. Uh, our true problem, even right here in the story, are, are things like adultery, hate, pride, selfishness, separation from God, hell-boundness. You could go on and on and on. Those are the true problems that Jesus is here to address, fight on our behalf, forgive us for at high cost to himself. We'll get to that later. Um, but all this leads me to this second theme, which it sort of snowballs a bit because there's a lesson here, and I call it here a mirror-like lesson because of how Jesus uses the woman uh, to teach a lesson to the guys on the outside. Let me just reread this, though, so it's fresh. And as they, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote in the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Okay, so Jesus here is doing what the Bible does elsewhere in different genres and in different ways, what scripture does elsewhere, in that he uses the woman's sin as an opportunity to expose their sin. You guys see that? He's using her sin and saying, well, now let's talk about you on the outside. Those of you who are perfect are able to judge her. Um, so he's using her uh, as almost an object lesson, in, in a sense, uh, to reveal something that they have just as much, if not worse, in their own hearts on the outside of, of the circle. He's saying to the religious rulers, uh, you are just like this woman because you too have sin in you. You are just like the ones you condemn as evil, just like them. You are just like the ones you hate the most. These are, these are words, by the way, for us as well. I'm speaking like this is in the story, and it is, but we're watching this as a lesson for us as well, that we are just like the ones we hate the most. Uh, or you could say kind of on a moral level, like he's saying, you good people are just like this bad person. There really is no difference. And so, again, uh, sometimes our response to this passage is affected by which side of the circle we see ourselves in. Like, are, are we in the middle, like the woman? Or are we on the outside, like the Pharisees, like, like the men? with rocks in their hands. Which are we? What's the point of this story? 
And the answer is both. I mean, and sometimes we'll feel like we're more one than the other, for sure. But the answer is for every human being who's ever lived, uh, because they're both on both sides of the circle, they're both human beings with sin, we are both at different times. But, but the point here, again, is grace sounds a bit different uh, if we're in the middle than, than we're, if we're on the outside. And that's not right or wrong or bad or, bad or good, it's just, it just is. It's the same grace, it just sounds different. Because if, like, if we brought a man or a person in the middle of the circle ourselves who had harmed us or done the most wicked thing we could ever think of, and we kind of plopped him in the middle and said, and saidEsus, deal with this. Um, the law of Moses says this to condemn this person. This person's worthy of death even. Like, I don't know what that person is for you, um, but think of someone, or it's like a group of people or something. Like, if we did that, and then think of, like, if Jesus acted that way towards that person, how would that make you feel? What if Jesus disarmed us and took the rocks out of our hands? What if Jesus um, said, we're just like the person? What if Jesus started talking about our sin and our shortcomings? And then what if Jesus showed the person that we felt deserved condemnation, no condemnation? We might cry for justice. We might say, unfair. We might say, but that's not the point. Of course I'm not perfect, but that's not why we're here. You'd probably say things like that, right? But what if Jesus actually forgave the person? See, grace starts to get real at that point right? I mean, for the worst of sins or for other people who've hurt me. But this is part of the point. We like grace sometimes when we're inside the circle, but we hate it when we're outside, or we at least take more offense at it when we're on the outside. But what's interesting, though, I think here is if you look at the people on the outside of the circle, these men, they actually, at least partially, we can't see in their brains, but they seem to be getting the message. In other words, they're not saying to Jesus, I'm not a sinner, you're wrong, like no one stayed, right? It'd be funny if someone stayed. That'd be like a second conversation, you know, for that person or something. But no one stayed, like they all like, well, I've got nothing to say. And, and, and they actually, they left the oldest to the youngest. Isn't that kind of neat too? Because the oldest are like, okay, you know, I, I, know, I know more my, my plight. Like I know, I know more my wicked heart and they have more of a humility to them, and so, in general, so they're leaving. But the younger ones, the more younger, arrogant ones that think they're the best, they, it takes them a little bit longer, but they finally get the point, and, and they leave too. But, but again, they're not saying, I'm, I'm not a sinner, nor are they saying, she's worse than I. They're not saying, yeah, I know what you're trying to do, Jesus, but she's still worse than me. So this needs, this needs to still happen. Like, no one's saying that either. They drop the rocks on the ground and start walking away, um, again, older to younger. Um, but there's a further lesson here, I think, too, that this speaks to. I, I kind of alluded to it, but I'll put it in the form of a question. And that is, what's the power behind living a less judgmental life? Like, how do we become less angry uh, as, as, as people? And I think the answer to that is it's not by saying, don't be angry. That doesn't work. But it is by taking this issue from the flank rather than the head-on and by seeing a glimpse of ourselves in other people's sins. That's what Jesus is trying to do here, right? He's trying to like, help them understand who they really are and understand that they're no different than the ones they think they're better than. 
Charles Spurgeon uh, has said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you to be. This is actually very deeply practical. I'd actually encourage you guys to literally think this when you're upset with people. Um, I've used this a lot in my life, uh, and it's been very helpful. But I share it with you not because it's practical only, but because uh, anger is brought up. You could plug a lot of things in here, but he's just saying um, anger. Like when you're criticized, when people, people think lowly of you, you know, like they're probably thinking you're a four out of ten, but you're actually a zero. Sorry, but I mean I am. Oh, they think I'm a four, and that hurts, but actually I'm a zero. They have no idea. They have no idea what goes on in here on a daily basis. They'd freak out if they knew. That's, what, that's, that's the point. All right, and so Jesus then is helping these men become less angry by lowering their anthropology, lowering their view of self, not by raising their self-esteem, that usually makes us jerks, but by actually lowering it and giving a healthier perspective on our limitations. Using, this is why I say mirror-like, because the woman becomes a mirror for you and, and, and for me. I don't know if you guys remember that story in the Old Testament where the prophet Nathan did this to David. You guys read this, and where is that? 2 Samuel 11? Where is that? I forget, but it doesn't matter. Um, but where the prophet Nathan is like, David sinned, he murdered someone and slept with the guy's wife. And it's kind of bad stuff, right? I mean, way up there, we would say. And, and he doesn't realize it. And so he, Nathan tells this story to help him see that he's the guy. And so that's that, that's that famous, that sort of famous thing where Nathan says, oh, but you're the man. Like, you're all upset about this story, but you're the guy. And it's, so it's kind of like here where Jesus is saying uh, to, the, to the people on the outside of the circle, you're the woman. Like, this is, this is about you. And yes, she sinned, and she's no better or worse than you. Ground is level here, but there's a lesson for people who think that they're better. And a lot of times, anger comes from thinking you're better than someone. And, and so there's a wider, like, this is nuanced as well. There's a wider like invitation here to think about a whole slew of things that aren't, it's not just don't be angry. That doesn't work. That's um, very little anyway. It's to think about who is God and who is Jesus and what is the gospel and who am I? Like a, a healthy biblical anthropology, a big view of sin, not small view of sin, and how those kind of coalesce together to just calm us down a bit and not just lose our whatever, you know, when we're reading something or... Um, when people criticize us. Okay. Sort of switching gears, but not really. Uh, this question of what is he writing in the ground? Has anybody ever wondered that, reading this passage? No one? Come on. It's fine. You don't have to raise your hand. Um, I've wondered this a lot. And uh, it's, it, it's a couple of times, right? Um, he, when this is all going on, he, it says he stoops down, it's lower to the ground, kind of kneels down and draws with his finger. And um, so, my, so as opposed to like going into, if you guys are interested in different like theories on what he wrote, um, I'd love to chat. Or if you want to pick up any commentary, you'll probably get a list of like, well, it could have been this, could have been that. Um, some people think he was just actually doodling, drawing pictures. Like that's a legitimate thought people have. That, that's kind of interesting. Maybe he was an artist. I don't know. But, um, but I think that more important than what is that. More important than what he's drawing, this is what people get lost in sometimes, and even commentaries. Most commentaries don't touch on this. I think it's a huge miss, swing and a miss. But more important than what is that, that he's writing. 
because this is not the first time that God has written with his finger in the Bible. In fact, that is the most important question here, I think, to ask, is where else does God write with his finger in the Bible, and how does that inform what's going on here in John 8? Basically, using the Bible to read itself, which you should all do if you're new to this or, or old. Using the Bible to read itself is the most faithful, safe, biblical way to, to read the Bible, because the Bible does do this to itself. Jesus does this. The Apostle Paul does this. They use it to understand itself. So where else does God write with his finger? Well, there are two places, uh, in, in the, and they both come from the Old Testament. Uh, it's when, when God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone with his finger, uh, which the New Testament calls a ministry of condemnation, the, the Old Covenant proper. I'll, I'll talk about that. And then also the second time is in Daniel 5 when uh, God writes on the wall to warn King Belshazzar of his impending death, which was also a, a word of condemnation because he died like later that night, I think, if you guys remember that story. Um, so Daniel interprets the dream. There's this king. There's this writing on the wall. And Daniel's like, you're not going to want to hear this. This is pretty bad news. But he says it anyway, and then it all happens. All right, then he dies later that night. <clears throat> okay, so the reason why all this is important is because they set the stage for Jesus not by way of comparison, but by way of contrast. This is a big Bible thing here as well. Sometimes the Bible compares old to new. A lot of times it contrasts, and we've been seeing that a lot in John. Moses said this, but, but, not and, but Jesus says this. The Old Testament was a ministry of condemnation, the New Testament, a ministry of righteousness and life. To again, reference uh, 2 Corinthians 3, but also uh, that we've been seeing this theme play out a lot in the Gospel of John 2 uh, in a narrative sense, also a prepositional sense, which has been pretty great. But Jesus then, uh, his finger writings are not associated with condemnation. They are associated with something altogether different than God's former writings. That is grace. And specifically... Verse 11, not condemnation. It's like, it's like the same word is used there in reference to condemning things that God did write with his finger, but here, no condemnations being shown as God again is writing with his finger. We're meant to see these things. There's not coincidences. And so Jesus then, his writings in the dirt really start to matter in, in a gospel way for us. We don't know what he wrote, but we know that his writings were associated with forgiveness, grace, and not treating people as they deserve. Again, the direct opposite of God's former finger writings in the Old Testament. For the law brought condemnation and punishments. And the writings on the wall in Daniel brought condemnation and punishments and the promise of death. The law did this as well. In fact, in Daniel 5, um, one of the things that's, that are on the wall, one of the things that God wrote on the wall with his finger to, to the king is you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And then he dies. This is, I mean, it's like a, talk about a fearful thing, right? To have God say, there are, there are scales and you're on them and you're being weighed and judged and you've been found wanting. You're not worthy. And then there's a punishment. There's death. Well, what's beautiful about this uh, is that when Jesus comes to write, there's a different message. In fact, 
To quote from the Pharisees in John 8, they said, well, the law, the Old Testament law, commanded us to stone such women. But Jesus doesn't keep the law here. He breaks with it, just like he's done several times, at least explicitly already in John, uh, and it's more implied. But it, this is a big deal. Moses said some things that Jesus breaks with. Jesus is not keeping the law here. He's breaking with it, clearly, right? And it's good for her and good for you and me that he does this. See, here's the gospel for you and me. There are no scales when it comes to being saved. Your life is not weighed before God between good and bad. Do you want there to be? Do you want the finger writings of God to be the same in the Bible? Do you want death to come based on how well you've performed today? They're different for a reason. They're different in order to tell a story. They're different to highlight contrast. They're different to to move from the lesser to the better, to the greater. You have a new mediator now, and and so do I. We all do. It's the blood of Jesus, not your works. It's the blood of Jesus, not your obedience. The testament that Jesus is here to inaugurate is not based on your obedience to to him, to his commandments at all, but only based on Jesus' substitutionary death. His work for you and me. That's it. There's no weighing of the scales. There, in fact, there are no scales. Jesus destroys the scales. Uh, if anything, you could say maybe he lays himself on the scales. I'll come back to that here in just a minute. But instead, there is just a gracious Jesus doodling on the ground as he's not picking the stone up himself or telling others to, a gracious doodling on the ground that means this woman's exoneration. That means her salvation. It means she can walk away and go home and have dinner that night when she shouldn't be able to. Uh, it, it, is, it is the epitome of, in one sense, injustice. This sh- something should happen that's not. But that's your guy's story too. Something should happen to you and me. We should die for our sins. But instead, God said, I will send my son to die for you. He'll die in your place. And if you believe in him, The finger writings that matter for you are gracious doodles in the ground, not the ultimate condemning writing on the wall or the Ten Commandments even being held above your head saying, keep me or die, which is what what they were. Which is why Israel said, stop talking, God, when he gave the law. Stop talking. We can't bear this, this, uh, this law anymore. They covered their ears. But instead, with Christ, we open them up. It's a better word. Jesus is a better word. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of the law. Because the, instance you, the instant you place yourself underneath the law, you condemn yourself because you haven't kept it. This is, what Paul, this is the whole argument in Romans and Galatians, uh, with some of the letters to the churches. Paul says, the instance you place yourself under, it's, you, you stand condemned. Uh, grace and law operate on, with different rules. You cannot blend them. You simply cannot. This is why Jesus isn't here. There's no condemnation for the woman because he's removing the law from from over her. If he kept the law over her, then she'd be stoned. But but he's taking the law away from overneath her head and he's placing himself over it. That's why she lives. That's why you live if you believe in Jesus. That's why I live. That's the only hope we have. Do not blend grace and law. God is is, is saying here through John 8 that that's not the predicament, the testament. That's not the story. 
The story isn't moving on from the old completely, uh, not, a, not a blending that keeps us under, in, well, I'll say on the scales. So then he says, after I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. And I like this. I think there's two things here uh, we'll talk a little bit about today. Um, one, I think by that, Jesus means, let my forgiveness shape you. This is how Christians uh, should think when it comes to like New Testament ethics. Forgiveness shapes you more than commandments, more than imperatives, and me. That's the, this is why Paul talks this way so much about the gospel comes first, and then out of that, our lives change. Um, in other words, like in John 8, this is not a rote command alone here, right? Uh, go and sin no more. It's set in the wake of a gospel act. She was forgiven first, forgiven first, moved by that, and then, and then a, a command to go and sin uh, no more. But I'll say this. The command sin no more has no power when it's divorced from an act of grace. The command to sin no more has absolutely no power in your life. The command not to not be angry anymore. The command to do anything you might consider good, explicitly biblical or not, has no power in your life to affect any change at all apart from an act of grace, first and thoroughly through it. In other words, you need to be wrecked and moved by the love of God and filled with his Holy Spirit. That is the only way to change. Change does not come from imperatives or commands or laws. It comes from the gospel. It comes from him. It comes from his, his heart being placed inside of us and us being resurrected into, new, into a new life with him. Okay, that's the first thing, the first angle on this, because you might actually talk to someone after, someone after first service about this, uh, where he was like, yeah, sin no more seems like kind of a high bar, you know? <laughs> and he's right. I don't know if you, if you ever felt that way. He felt, and I, I totally understood. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. He, but he said, I don't, like, I don't like this passage because of that. Like, that's the last word? That's the last thing, you know? And, and, he, and he's right. But, but I think in, in one sense, and I'll get to the second thing here in a minute, but the first thing is you have to understand the context here. This is pre-cross as well, of course, which I'll get to that. But the forgiveness shapes. That's the point. And, um, but the second thing is important too because I think Jesus knows this woman is going to sin again in her life. You guys ever think about it that way? When do you think the woman sinned again? Like a few minutes later or maybe later that night or maybe the next morning or maybe in a week? Does it really matter? It doesn't. The point is she sinned. Um, and so in that point, in that moment, what do you, wh- where do you go, I think, right? This is, if you guys are Christians, this is probably something you've thought a lot about, I'm guessing, but in a lot of ways, you're no different than you were. You keep sinning, right? If you're like me, we sin all the time. In some ways, we're very different uh, than we were before we were Christians. In a lot of ways, we're the same old, same old. And we just keep stubbing our toe over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the question is, though, where do you go then? Do you go back to Jesus? Or do you feel terrible about yourself, like you're a bad Christian? Those are different. All right? So I think that in a lot of ways, Jesus says something up his sleeve here. I think he's thinking... Actually, to the woman, uh, in the subtext at least, like, you will sin again, even after I told you not to. 
But in that moment, you'll realize the deliverance from being stoned to death here is just a glimpse. You need more. You need the cross. You need my death for your sins. And you'll always need me. My grace is not a one-off to you living a transformed life apart from me. As he says elsewhere, without me, you can do nothing. And so that's really where all this, I think, is headed. I, I, Jesus does this a lot, too. Where he'll, like, heal somebody of paralysis or something, and then he'll say, follow me. Well, where's he going? Follow me where? He's going to Jerusalem, right, to die on a cross for the sins of the world. So I, I think in one sense, too, when he heals people, he's saying, that paralysis healing is not what you ultimately need. Like, you need spiritual healing from sin. And when you follow me and watch me hang on that cross, the dots will connect, right? And I think the similar things going on here, sin no more, pretty high bar, actually very high. It's impossible for her to do, just like it is for you, Christian or not. Like if I end my sermon today by saying sin no more ever again, that'd be like, first of all, worst way to end a sermon ever. You know, I should probably be fired. And you guys will never do it, right? And so like, what are we talking about here? And so we, we end with Jesus. And so I think the high bar is there as a... Um, Almost an intentional thing that, so that when she sins, she'll want more Jesus. She'll open her hands up and say, I, I need more than just this temporal, momentary not being stoned to death. Like, I need comprehensive, I need, I need God to die for my sins. And she, she didn't know this yet, of course, but, but we do. I need God to lay his life down for me. I, I need holistic salvation. I need eternal life. And that's what he wants for her to know. That's where he's headed. And that's where this passage is headed to. All right? And that last piece is the cross typified. When you um, understand that everything before the cross is about it, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Uh, and, and when you picture Jesus on that cross dying for our sins, it starts to resolve the tension behind some unfairness and injustice of what's happening here. Like, if you, if you have a question about, well, the woman didn't believe and repent, so how can we, like, you know, place this on top of, like, our understanding of, like, a conversion or something? And in one sense, that's a great question, but that's actually anachronistic because this is before the cross. This is just a glimpse, not a reality. So the fact that Jesus is going to die for her and us it starts to put an end cap on these earlier stories that seem like they leave something hanging. So it resolves the injustice. It fulfills Jesus' finger writings. It demonstrates uh, his compassion at the highest level and apparent abdications of judgment, which I touched on. And, it, and it's this. In, in John 8, um, it's, it's pointing to the cross. It's saying that Jesus will later be stoned for her. That's how this is able to actually happen. Like, that's ultimately how she'll be forgiven. Jesus, and you and I. That Jesus will lay himself on the scales for her, weighed in her place when, she, when, she is, or when he is crucified for the sins of the world. Even though he's perfect, he'll be found wanting, to quote Daniel 5. He'll be found wanting on the scales. He's the ultimate King Belshazzar the ultimate uh, good king, but who came, became like an evil king. Remember uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, he who knew no sin became sin. See, the writing on the wall is ultimately for Jesus. The ultimate writing was like, was God, God the Father saying, you will die, and you're being sent to die, and the, and the Son gladly accepting that mission. 
and being obedient to his father. The writing on the wall is for, for Christ, not for you. That, that's how it's actually able to happen. Otherwise, it's a blatant injustice. It's actually an evil. To call evil good and vice versa? But because he died here, taking on your sins and mine, God is able to do justice while not doing justice on top of you. He can show you grace and mercy. See, he's bearing the curse of the law so you don't have to live under it anymore. That's what's happening here. Uh, Galatians 3 and 4 talk about that. He's bearing the curse of an unkeepable law among criminals dying in the worst, worst possible way. And I think that you actually get a, a glimpse here in John 8 too of, uh, of, of the cross in, in the writing on the ground. Um, I think it's a small picture of substitutionary atonement. You guys ever uh, dug your finger in the ground like at the beach or out in your backyard trying to draw something and like hit a rock or something or a piece of glass like I have? It's not amazingly fun. Um, it hurts, right? Like it can just, even if it's not breaking the skin, it doesn't like feel amazing. And um, I think that's part of the point here. Again, the point is not what, or sorry, um, sorry, yes, the point is not what is Jesus writing, but that. The point is not what's he doodling, but that his finger is being harmed. It's a small glimpse, but it's a point ahead to the time when his body, his whole body, will be scratched, harmed, and cut open for you and me. And like here, he's placing one part of his body in the ground, so later he would place his whole body in the ground after he dies and is buried for the sins of the world. I think his finger writings are a picture of his burial. It's an anticipation of it. And this is, again, the way it's, it's, uh, it's associated with this woman's deliverance. And probably why the men are going home to dinner as well and not being stoned to death themselves. They've committed adultery as well, at least in their heart, right? So this is, there's massive, like, injustice happening here unless Jesus dies as a human being for, for you and me. But that's the point. In association with his scratched finger, it's really the association that we have with Jesus' cut body and his bruised body and his crucified, his nail-pierced hands, uh, that brings us to grace and brings us, to, brings us back to life, you know? Like, Jesus was buried for you guys he, to, to carry your sins far away so that we can walk away forgiven, free, and alive. That's the gospel. And a lot of you guys believe that. Some of you don't yet. But it's, it's the same news for all of you that in order to, to carry our sins far away, he had to die first. He had to be buried. And we get the unfair benefit we get forgiveness, like this woman. Forgiveness, freedom, and life. And grace comes at a cost. Grace, this is why we feel the, the sting here a little bit. Like, grace on the outside of the circle might not feel amazing. Grace comes at a cost, a cost that he is willing to pay and that we freely receive. Uh, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, none, zilch, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Christ, who believe in him, who trust him, who've received him into their life. There's no condemnation anymore. If you believe that, those of you who are not a Christian yet, this is what it means to be a Christian. Like we, we come empty-handed, wounded, dead, looking for life. 
and we come to Jesus and say, I, I believe that God became a human being like me to die in my place. And we somehow, we somehow cling to that. We don't, might, we don't have all the things figured out, but it's not contingent on that, but we trust in the man, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and who brought exoneration and forgiveness, not condemnation. He was condemned, so we would not be. He was hurt, so we would not be. He was judged, so we would not be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, for all of its nuances and layers and complexities. Uh, We thank you for it. We thank you that it's here. Uh, We thank you that it happened. And we thank you that we're here as well, and you're here. The same Christ who wrote in the ground around that woman 2,000 years ago is alive in this room right now. And um, we have the gracious hands of of Christ, not a finger of condemnation, but a hand that was crucified and and run through with a nail uh, so that we might be spared. That's amazing grace. It's scandalous. It's hard to fully comprehend, certainly hard to feel, like we never fully feel it. But I pray for that, that we wouldn't just know the concepts of these things. We'd feel the reality and the truth of it by the Holy Spirit this week. And um, that when we read stories like this, we would not just see vague, a vague notion of love and grace, but we would see the specific love and grace of the cross anticipated. Jesus being harmed even a little, Jesus absorbing the pain even a little bit, anticipates, points ahead to a time when it would truly happen at the highest of levels uh, for all who believe. In Christ we pray.